if I was to imagine Jesus being here, I think Jesus would attract the same people that he attracted in the first century, which is people who, who felt and knew and recognized their own neediness. And throughout the rest of Matthew's gospel, you see this incredible identification on Jesus' part with people who are those that are really at the margins. What you don't see is Jesus' identification with power or with leadership or with money. Those are all things that he, in various ways, indicts and has some of the most harsh words that he speaks in the whole of of the Gospels fall to people in those categories. They almost never fall in that way to people that are broken, marginalized, etc. That's the voice of Mark Laverton, president of Fuller Seminary. And like me, President Laverton believes evangelicalism must take a hard look at itself and the religious-political partnership in which it's been engaged for the past five decades. And Mark Laverton is our guest today on the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast. All right, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Paul Swearingen here. I'm the Nonpartisan Evangelical, and, and just really excited to have a very, very special guest with us today, my Wife and I have been privileged to have a couple of opportunities to connect with President Mark Laberton from Fuller Seminary in uh, Pasadena. He's the president there, uh, also has been a pastor for 30 years or so, and 16 years uh, was the senior pastor of First Presbyterian Church of Berkeley. He's an author and uh, authored a, a, a book that we like the, uh, the title of Dangerous Act of Worship, Living God's Call to, now I can't read my own writing, Living God's Call to Justice, right? Right. And where can people get that, President Laberton? Uh, it's available in any, you know, online. The or, usual you know, places. It's published by University Press. Awesome. And of course, you bring the credentials of uh, Fuller and Cambridge and all of that. So you're, uh, you're a learned guy. And so I just really appreciate you being on with me today. Thanks for coming. Happy to do this. Yeah, look, I've been looking forward to it. Thanks, Paul. Uh, what a joy. So uh, let, let's jump right into it. In, in 2018, and, and this is sort of where I got intrigued with you and started following you, you were invited to a, a meeting of evangelicals in, in Wheaton, Illinois at Wheaton College. And I think you actually sort of kicked it off, didn't you, with, with what you shared? And, and it's on the Fuller website if anybody wants to see it, but entitled The, the Crisis of Evangelicalism. And so do you today still see a crisis in evangelicalism? And if so, how would you characterize that? Yeah, I think there's definitely a crisis in evangelicalism as I see it. Uh, I, I think that really, in part, the 2016 election didn't create the crisis, but I think it exposed all kinds of things about the, the terrain of evangelicalism in America and the way that it is defined often, in my view, more by our sociology and by where we live and by uh, our economic bracket and by uh, the, our denominational affiliations more than by the gospel itself. And I just find that troubling because certainly when I read the gospels, uh, it feels to me like that's a whole lot of incrustation that has surrounded the gospel. And one of the reasons why I always encourage everyone to be as frequent in reading the Gospels themselves as possible, is that I don't think we should ever be very far away from the Gospel itself and the vividness of Jesus' own life and ministry. So this, this crisis that I see is a crisis that, that on the right and on the left has led to a kind of evangelicalism that is really more about ideology and about culture 
than it is about displaying the life and the character, the love and mercy and justice of God revealed in Jesus Christ. And that's a crisis because then it means that we're failing to live our identity. And and that's that's expressed by many critics of the church uh, inside and outside the church. We, we should be identified by our likeness and our quest for a likeness to Jesus. Whereas, in fact, it's really a quest for a likeness to a party platform or to a certain kind of sociological frame. And I think that's often very, very distant from Jesus. And, and I think it looks and smells like it's distant from Jesus. So I, I think it's an indictment to all of us to ask ourselves, where are we really? From what do we understand our Christian identity? And then how do we really live it out in as vivid and tangible a way as possible? I, I guess, though, what I hear uh, people saying is, well, if you're going to speak truth, people are going to, to hate you. You know, they hated Jesus and right. they hate me. So are, are, aren't yeah. we supposed to want to be uh, persecuted and hated? Well, yes, but I'm afraid that it's reading it backwards. <laughs> if we're hated, therefore, we must be like Jesus. Uh, I think that's not the way the equation goes. It's more like if we were actually like Jesus, it might be that we would be hated. Mm-hmm. But the assumption that because I'm hated, I'm like Jesus is a, is a false one. So uh, I think let's let's lean toward what it means to be somebody of boldness and courage, but also humility and servanthood uh, and faithfulness and tenderness and uh, and tenacity and all the other things that we could use to describe Jesus. But let's make sure it's all surrounded and centered on the character of Jesus, not surrounded and centered on the character of any other figure. So, you know, I, I wrote a novel recently trying to imagine what it would look like if Jesus were here today. And I mean, how do you, what would Jesus look like in the envir- environment of the political culture of the church today were he here in the flesh, you think? Well, I think one of the most uh, surprising texts to me comes at the end of Matthew chapter 4. So we've come through the early chapters, which are a kind of long introduction to the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, the genealogy, the birth narratives, the uh, visitation by the Magi, uh, the, the ultimately the, uh, the escape of the Holy Family to Egypt as refugees, their return, uh, ultimately Jesus, the inference of Jesus' growing up years, eventually his baptism by John, the launching of his public ministry, the calling of disciples to be followers. And then at the very end of Matthew 4, it says, and then Jesus went about teaching and healing. And people that came to him were people of every kind of place and language and circumstance and of every kind of disease and brokenness and need. So if I was to imagine Jesus being here, I think Jesus would attract the same people that he attracted in the first century, which is people who who felt and knew and recognized their own neediness for a redeemer, for a savior, for a healer, for somebody whose compassion and mercy uh, stepped toward them in their vulnerability. And throughout the rest of Matthew's gospel, as you see also in the other gospels, you see this incredible identification on Jesus' part with people who are those that are really at the margins. What you don't see is Jesus' identification with power or with leadership, or with money. Those are all things that he, in various ways, indicts and has some of the most harsh words that he speaks in the whole of of the Gospels fall to people in those categories. They almost never fall in that way to people that are broken, marginalized, etc. So if I imagine Jesus being here, I just imagine him seeing people on the streets. I'm living in Los Angeles, the Los Angeles area. There are literally thousands of people 
52 to 60,000 people in Los Angeles County that are living on the streets. I think Jesus would see those people. He he would see the vulnerable. He would see the people that are here uh, without appropriate papers. He'd see people that are um, facing various kinds of economic, social, racial issues, and he would step toward them. Mm-hmm. And those are questions that I get asked a lot about as as well. And and I hear people say, "Well, Jesus didn't live in a democracy. He didn't have a chance to to change the government." But I. But I do see in the text that he specifically avoided the political arguments of the day. And, and, and so would you see that that the, the way, say, we approach abortion or gay marriage or the big issues, social issues, do you think he would be diving into those or would he uh, how, how do you think he would handle kind of specifically the big issues of the church? Yeah. Well, let me start in slightly different uh, place, but come back to what you're asking because it's a really urgent question. Yeah. So, if we if we believe that the central and primary Christian confession is that Jesus is Lord, we're making a statement about power. We're saying there is no one and nothing else hmm. that could rival the authority and power of Jesus. But then, when we look at how Jesus uses his power and authority, it's a power and authority that does these very surprising things that I've just described, and. And as a consequence, what's interesting is that instead of going toe-to-toe with Caesar, as we might have imagined some kind of Messiah doing, or toe-to-toe with some other figure, political or social or economic figure, instead what we see is that he primarily makes himself available for his power and authority to be used by people who are at the margins. Mm -hmm. And then when he does encounter people with power, religious or political power, he's unshirking in calling them into account and measuring them by the standard of the righteousness of the kingdom of God and calling people to be conformed to the people that they are really meant to be, right? So it's a, it's a very, very different approach. So what would he do today about these issues? I think he would step toward them, um, but I think he would subvert them in different ways. So anything that we would use as a tag for a summation of our identity, except for the fact that we are created and beloved in the image of God and called to be a child of God through the love and mercy and grace of of Jesus Christ is to give ourselves to an identity that is smaller than we're ever intended to live. So I think he would not be drawn into identity politics. However, he would not be naive about identity politics. So he would understand the issues that are at stake there and and understand the, the suffering and the injustice that's often come about as a result of a failure to acknowledge those things. But when he does, what I see him doing is again and again identifying with people whose identity, public identity, whose identity politics actually leads them into vulnerability or pain, and he steps toward them. So let's take an example. Uh, Matthew, the tax collector, clearly he had an identity. He had a very public identity. He was a person who had power, who had authority, who had control, who had access all of these things that you could imagine saying were true of Matthew. Jesus, first of all, identifies with him. He enters his home. He extends this sense of the the deep benevolence and grace and mercy of God toward Matthew, which then causes Matthew to say, I want to live out an entirely different identity, which instead of about getting money that I'm not even deserving of getting, I'm now going to give away several times over what I've first taken unjustly, right? So, what I see in that is Jesus' ability to uh, to redefine identity, even when we think at the time that those uh, narratives were first written, that it was very clear what their identity was, or the woman that was caught in adultery. We don't know her whole story, 
but what we do know is that there's something about that that allows the uh, the officials of the day, in that case, religious officials, to believe that they had the goods on her. They knew exactly who this woman was and what she was doing and what she shouldn't have been doing. But when they throw her uh, at Jesus and ask her, him to, to condemn her, uh, he undoes it by saying, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. These are examples to me of a kind of surprising subversion of authority. So he might have said, yes, you're right to find her guilty. I, too, find her guilty. There's nothing in the text that makes you think that she wasn't guilty. <laughs> uh, Jesus says, go and sin no more after, after saying this to her, right? But he refuses to give her an identity that is smaller than the identity she deserves mm. because of who she's created to be and because of the love of God uh, toward her. So I think would Jesus enter these, he'd absolutely enter the fray, but he would do it in a very uh, subversive way that would not be drawn into the boundaries of the way this the debates are often set up and instead would be given to uh, to an unexpected mercy and grace and truth-telling that's bigger and wider and deeper. It's, it's just so often that our vision of the gospel is just too small. So then we encounter these moments, and because we have a very small gospel, then we feel completely fine filling it out with a lot of other flourishes around our politics and our, our concerns, all of which matter. I'm not in the least uh, dispensing with that. I'm just saying a Christian imagination needs to be bigger than the political categories that were handed. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. So so what does that was that look like? Because I'm with you. I think Jesus would absolutely have been specifically engaged. He would vote. Uh, he would vote his conscience and all of that. But how do you so how do you see the, the life that Jesus modeled then then translating for a Christian to walk out, particularly in a in a culture where today we are so divided around our politics uh, inside and outside the church. Right. When I was a pastor in Berkeley, um, I started getting letters from uh, a man who lived in San Francisco and who would write to me and respond to the sermons that I had preached. And I'd never met him. He'd never attended our church. Very engaging, interested, interested letters, appreciative, but then always asking um, interesting questions about it. And then gradually. Um, after some time, I asked him if, if he would be willing to talk on the phone because he had hesitant, he had been hesitant about uh, coming to Berkeley for reasons I didn't know. So eventually we talk on the phone. Eventually the trust level is high enough that he explains to me um, that he is uh, a man who is living with full-blown AIDS, that he's living in an AIDS hospice in San Francisco, that it's a small hospice. There's about 10 or 15 men who are living there. This is at the height of the AIDS crisis in the, in the mid, uh, late eighties. He says, um, you know, most of us are, or many of us at least have grown up in Christian homes. Our families have not been willing to maintain contact with us. Um, I, I'm sick enough now that I really don't leave where I am. Most mm. of the other guys who are living here are pretty much in the same circumstance. We're not sure that if we came to any church, your church or any other church, that we would actually receive a welcome. Our faith is sort of in tatters because we can't figure out what to do. And it's so perplexing to us because uh, here we are at the end of our life and we're all going to die. Um, but we don't know where to turn. So I said, well, could I come and visit you then if you're not, not willing to come to, uh, to Berkeley? He said, he was surprised. I said, no, don't be surprised. There's nothing about this that's the least bit heroic or surprising. I'm just saying 
you're, you've told me now enough to understand your boundaries. Can I, would you let me come and visit you? And it was really to visit him. It was not to visit with the house. Well, anyway, it turned out that I visited him. I visited others that were living in the hospice as well. They, in the end, literally all of them died of AIDS. Mm-hmm. And, um, and as I went there a number of times, I, I was just so aware that, that their life had, of course, like anybody in the closing stages of life, is facing really raw questions, really unresolved issues, unresolved relationships. And, and what I was there to do was certainly to affirm to them what I believe strongly, that God knows them, knows them thoroughly, that God will be fair, that God will be just, that God will be merciful toward them. I appealed to them to, to have confidence in that and put their trust in Christ. Um, but I also wanted to try to just be present with them in in this unbelievable moment that they were facing and many, many others, of course, were facing at the same time. I just tell that story because in a certain way, when I think about what I was trying to bring there, I was trying to say, you are more than, uh, as Brian Stevenson says about people that are on death row, we are each one more than the worst thing we've ever done. Certainly a person with HIV AIDS is more than whatever it was that brought about the the uh, infection that's now taking their life. And, and I wanted to be assured that they knew that God saw them in their wholeness mm. and not as just a piece of it. So often when I'm in conversations uh, with people who are activists, I, I, I feel as though they rightly are condemning the church for the church's message to them, which is we only see you as a, a same-sex person or as a trans person or as a bisexual person or whatever it, your circumstances may be around those issues, for example, we only see you in that way. And because we've decided that's and understand that that's not what our tradition uh, affirms and teaches, we therefore make you the problem. And we're going to make sure that you understand just how wrong you are. Mm-hmm. So we have been guilty, not of handing them a full picture of who we are. We've zeroed in on a particular um, set of things that that we're quite convinced that we understand clearly. And, and I do take a traditional view of this. And at the same time, I, a traditional view is not a narrow view of their full beloved humanity made in the image of God. So, and the same thing often happens in other, in other categories, whether it's yeah. debates around abortion or whether it's uh, a, homosexual issues or whether it's um, other kinds of issues that have to do with even things like, like guns and um, racial issues in America. It, it We get fixated on certain small things. And I would hope that a Christian imagination and a Christian mercy and a Christian vision for justice blows up all of those small particularities so that we can actually remember the total picture of who the people are that we're really talking to and engaging. Yeah. And as I talk to evangelicals in my world, and I tell them, I, I know it's not your your goal to say you're not welcome to people who disagree with these particularly conservative social issues. But, but I tell them when I talk to people, that's what they're hearing from us. That, that's what right. they hear, whether we want to say that or not. And how do you right. get a chance to, to connect them to God if that's what they're hearing from us? And, and yes, that's exactly. something we have to look at, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. No, and I and I think we have to be full of deep repentance as a as a Christian community of how how really badly we have handled so many of these issues and how 
unfaithfully and narrowly we have uh, treated people as a result of it. I, I think of the, I'm not remembering right now, the man who been such a, a strong anti-abortionist and had led really a lot of things that ultimately led to a moment where somebody in his name and in response to his teaching and advocacy ended up killing somebody who had mm. been an abortion doctor. And he realized that this had happened really because of his own advocacy. And he was uh, brought up short by this. He's, I think, recently written uh, a book about this. And and when you heard him interviewed by a number of different uh, outlets, the thing that struck me was how much broader a picture of himself, his neighbor, even the enemy now was because he stepped back from the from the narrowness of the front line. And he was horrified that the net net of his teaching had led somebody to kill someone else. And, you know, he said, I'll, I will be sorry for that for the rest of my life. That what I obviously now look back and think, what was I doing? What was I saying? Um, and, uh, and was, you know, full of enormous remorse about it. Um, but the same thing needs to, I think, grip the Christian church these days over many, many positions that we've had, which, which uh, strip ourselves and other people of their dignity and value uh, in the name of something that we believe is right and true. Uh, it's an understandable problem, but it's not one that we should uh, just simply accept. It's one that should indict us and call us into some kind of broader, deeper place that, that is the place that I think Jesus invites us to live. Hi, Paul here from the Nonpartisan Evangelical and NPEPodcast.com. Let me interrupt uh, this great conversation with President Laverton for a moment and let you know more about the Nonpartisan Evangelical. Our mission is to challenge mindsets, build community, and to move people to action. Simply put, my wife Ashley and me believe there's a better presentation of who God is and the story of the Bible than the divisive religious partisanship of the evangelical church of today. If Jesus were on earth today in the flesh, I'm absolutely convinced he wouldn't participate in the right-wing mindset of the Christian church. And if Jesus wouldn't do it, why would we? This is our message, and we're finding a lot of people who are thanking us for having the courage to speak out against the divisive right-wing mindset in the church. At the Nonpartisan Evangelical, we particularly feel an urgency to share this message with the younger generations and with the people who have felt they don't have a place in church anymore because they aren't Republican enough. We're excited about this journey at NPE, and we want you to come along with us. So there's a really easy way for you to get involved. Sign up on our insiders list on our website at npepodcast.com. All you have to do is hit that join the NPE community button. It's on our website, NPE, that's nonpartisan evangelical, npepodcast.com. Click on the join the NPE community button and give me your email address. And for that simple act of giving me your email address, I'll give you my ebook, The Making of Joseph, for free. Now, The Making of Joseph tells about my journey to write my new novel, Joseph Comes to Town When the Religious Right Goes Religiously Wrong. And this free gift to you includes the first three chapters of my book. You're gonna love it, and it's absolutely free for everyone who joins our Insiders List. And of course, on our Insiders List, you get updates on the podcasts that are coming up, NPE online meetings, and special opportunities to interact. So... To be a part of the nonpartisan evangelical journey, go to our website, NPE, that's nonpartisan evangelical, NPEpodcast.com. And together, 
Let's challenge mindsets, let's build community, and let's move people to action. And let's tell the world, God doesn't require you to be a divisive, angry partisan. And God is definitely not mad at you. Now, back to the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast. We're talking with Mark Laberton, the president of Fuller Cemetery. Uh, cemetery. I am so sorry. Seminary. Um, That's a classic verbal slip. Yes, it is. It's, <laughs> uh, Fuller Seminary in, in Pasadena, which is a, in in my stream of Christendom, if I can use that term, is a really significant uh, learning place. And I, and I think in that is, is, is so how do we, uh, you say in the traditional views, how do we reach out to say, the gay community, and I, I hate to keep picking on that one, in light of Romans 1 or something else, you know, how, how do we rectify what we see in Scripture? How do we invite them into our churches? Uh, and again, I even hate to use the word them. I'm not trying to classify anybody, but, it's, but I, my language isn't any better than that. How do, we, how do we be welcoming to people and still stay true to, to what we see in Scripture, perhaps? Yeah. Well, let me use an example. Um, there was a young pastor that I knew in Walnut Creek, um, and he was leading his congregation uh, to think seriously about how were they as a newly planted church going to engage in the significant challenges in the Bay Area in a variety of ways. So one day, uh, he happened to be over in San Francisco, and he was wandering through Golden Gate Park, and he came um, to the part of the park, uh, which is the HIV AIDS memorial part of Golden Gate Park. And, um, and there was a person there that was gardening and he just started talking to this person about their gardening. And he, uh, had explained to him how the garden in that part of the park is taken care of and what the cycle was of people that come there and why it's such a gathering place for people all around the world who have lost loved ones, um, from HIV AIDS. And, um, and eventually this leads to a relationship where he comes and starts gardening alongside this person. And then he invites his church to come and do some gardening in the AIDS Memorial. Um, this, the people that gather, I, I think I have this right, that the people that gather uh, there are people who, um, who are memorializing those that they've lost, but they also have an annual gathering at the AIDS Memorial. And there's a whole group of people that are part of this. And because of the trust and the relationship that was developed, this was a, a church that maintained what I would call a traditional view of uh of same-sex relationships, LGBT concerns, et cetera. Um, but deep trust, deep affection had grown up in the, in, the, in, in the midst of honesty and friendship and love. And eventually this church asked if they could host this event that was going to be held annually, that they would, they would come, they would organize it, they would provide all of what was needed. They were there to, not to proselytize, they were there to be a, a present witness of hospitality to people who were grieving, people who were suffering, and to try to bear witness to an image of Jesus Christ uh, for that community that often feels so deeply rejected by the church. So I tell that story because it, what was so striking to me about it was that it was a it was a journey. It wasn't a simple conversation. It wasn't a single act. It was one over time. It was about investment of real effort and energy, it involved, yes, having to acknowledge of each other that there were differences in the way that they saw things. And there was still 
greater grace than they had to offer than simply the grace of trying to tell the truth about what they believe the Bible taught about same-sex issues. That was the grace of God was infinitely greater than that. Mm -hmm. So yes, they wanted to speak about the truth related to what they thought was same-sex relationships. That was done in a private way and not in a dominating way, but it was really more, how do we make sure that, uh, that we have really a clear picture of what's happening Mm -hmm. and, um, and how do we tell the fullness of God's love and how do we then display that in a way that people in the language of the psalmist could taste and see that the Lord is good. So, you know, I think often when questions like the one you're asking are raised, we, we only are interested in kind of a, what do we say? What's the, what's the quick one, two punch in the middle of a hot conversation? I get that. Um, I guess I, I guess I think in the end, I think those are, are less likely to be even meaningful. I think the, the bigger question is, even if we could do that, um, the the deeper question is, what are we really displaying about the character of God? And do we realize that, that we're called to be and to love and to demonstrate the truth of God and the gospel, but also the, the grace of God and the gospel? Well, you, even you're talking about the story of the woman caught in adultery, the go and sin no more, I always say, came right. well after Jesus had risked his life for this woman and certainly right. risked his reputation for her. So right. I always say, you can say, go and sin no more. You can have that discussion after you've put everything on the line for those people. Right. And, I had this really amazing experience once when I was in um, Uganda, and um, I had spent a, a, a number of days while I was there primarily with people who were HIV positive. And it was at the time when, um, in the 90s, when the AIDS crisis throughout Africa, as it still continues to be, but n- nothing like what it was at that particular moment, where it was just, uh, you know, fast moving and destructive in every direction. And um, and I was with this one particular group of people, and and they were all pretty advanced with HIV. Uh, I think a few of them were uh, full-blown AIDS, but most of them were HIV positive, but they didn't have enough money to be able to afford to take uh, antiretroviral drugs because they couldn't have the diet that was necessary to be able to metabolize drugs that they would otherwise take. So they were truly wasting away. Um, And they couldn't really believe and express this, actually, that I as a white North American would actually be with them for a day. Mm -hmm. Now, this was so shaming to me, really, personally, because it felt like it was such a reflection of what had been told to them, right? I mean, it's a long story. It's not just a short story. I mean, it's, it's not only about HIV AIDS, it's about this the history of colonialism and many other things. Anyway, so um, it was a very tender, wonderful time. And, and we ended by, uh, by each person coming forward and uh, a man that's a great friend of mine there and I laying hands on each one of these people and praying for them. Okay, so about two years later, I'm back and, and we go to, uh, a, a village near the one that I was just describing. And uh, we're now uh, in a room and suddenly there's a kind of party spirit going on that I couldn't really quite tell what it was, but were we, what was it that we were celebrating exactly? And they started laughing. And I said, I, I'm, I'm really not understanding what's, what's happening. And they said, well, we're the same people that you were with two years ago, but then we had no antiretrovirals. We didn't have enough food. We wow. didn't have the ability to. So they were literally people that were 
transformed in front of me. And I have a, a picture of the of the first time that I was with them and the second time that I was with them and the contrast between these two and their sense of vigor and dignity and hope and um, the value of their lives, the assurance that, that, that once I understood who they were, and they thought this would be a shock to me, which it was, I couldn't even, I couldn't even believe they were the same group. Um, but we eventually got them actually into the same position where I could compare every face to, to the first shot versus the second shot. Anyway, um, I think what I'm getting at here is that, that those kinds of moments are transforming in understanding that, that there's so much more to this narrative than just the declaration of you are a sinner or you have HIV or you have AIDS or you are a homosexual or you are a, a, a transgendered person. I mean, all of these things, um, nobody's trying to avoid the truth at all. It's just the truth about us all is so much greater than any one label could ever possibly sustain. So why would we only want to use that one small label in relationship to somebody who God sees as beloved and, and created in his image and, and meant for his glory? Well, I hope you enjoyed this first half of our discussion with Dr. Mark Labberton, president of Fuller Seminary. Part two is going to be coming out soon. And if you join our insiders list on the Nonpartisan Evangelical website at nppodcast.com, you're going to get an alert when part two is coming out. So don't miss it. I'll give you a preview of what Dr. Laverton is going to say in part two here in just a moment. But first, also let me tell you that a very special segment with Dr. Laverton is going to be available only to the nonpartisan evangelical community on our NPE Patreon page. Now, Patreon's a website for creatives to get financial support from people who enjoy their work. Just like Shakespeare, Mozart, and Galileo had patrons to support them to facilitate their amazing work, people like you can help support people like my wife Ashley and me in sharing the nonpartisan evangelical message. Now, we might not exactly be Mozart or Galileo, I, I get that. But if you feel our message is worthwhile, then join our NPE Patreon community at patreon.com slash NPE podcast. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash NPE podcast. Remember, you can hear a special Patreon only segment with Dr. Laverton right now over on our NPE podcast Patreon website for a very low sign up fee at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash NPE podcast. Now, here's a preview of our next conversation with Dr. Mark Laverton. I, I think that the gospel indicts both the left and the right and everyone in between. It's not as though it is uh, in any way an endorsement of, of conservative or of liberal. I think those are, are almost meaningless words when it comes to the Christian faith. I think it, it has to do with how do we understand the, the incarnation of Christian values, which are so much richer than those two political categories, which have nothing to do with the kingdom of God. They just happen to be a political reality of the era that we live in. I mean, it, it's hardly like these are sanctified uh, categories. Until next time, keep challenging mindsets and keep changing the world with us here at the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast at npepodcast.com. <laughs>